0: assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself remember just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done don't confuse movement with progress we live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace more connectivity but less connection more information but less wisdom The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast.
1: So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that Have you the will and determination to do anything
0: about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Tibbetts. For episode number 12, I chatted with Mike Solana, VP of Brand and Community at Founders Fund, about having the courage to speak your mind, self-censorship, the rising tide of socialism in the United States, and the power of the stories we tell ourselves, both as individuals and societies, have to dramatically alter the future we end up living in. Mike runs creative programming for Founders Fund, including F50, the firm's annual summit, and Shop Talk, the firm's professional networking series. He's also the creator and producer of the firm's awesome podcast, Anatomy of Next, which just went into its new season. Mike also just launched a personal podcast called Problematic, which I highly recommend checking out. Prior to joining Founders Fund, he edited nonfiction for The Penguin Group. There he acquired and developed New York Times best-selling work in the fields of technology, politics, philosophy, and humor. Mike is one of the best follows on Twitter and you can follow him at Mike Solana, M-I-C-S-O-L-A-N-A. Whether you agree with him or not, Mike has the courage to speak his mind, his cultural commentary is next level, and if nothing else, he will definitely push the way you think. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mike Solana. Mike, thanks for taking the time to join me on the Paradox podcast. First five minutes of every single conversation I'm having these days is about COVID-19, so we might as well get that out of the way. What are some things that maybe you're optimistic about in terms of how the
1: pandemic is going to shift society, and what are some things that you're worried about? I was really trying to think of something that I could be optimistic about. I think going into the pandemic, I was feeling more optimistic than I am now because it seemed like people were really sort of dropping the bullshit and working together. And even just in our tiny little world of tech Twitter, there seemed to be a ceasefire between the media and and the tech people for a second. And people were just focused on this thing that was really scary. And that all has collapsed. It's like all gone away. Actually, all that has happened in isolation is I've realized how far apart from each other we are in terms of these weird tribal identities we all cling to. We've retreated into them in a way that I did not expect. I really, really expected more of a coming together. I guess maybe I shouldn't have expected it. A friend of mine, Kim I Cutler, shared with me a tweet storm yesterday that she found where someone went through everything that happened during the 1918 pandemic. And it did seem a lot like this. People weren't really coming together. A lot of people were fighting up against the sort of stay inside laws and there was some like tribal stuff happening but i don't know this this just feels pretty dark i think the optimistic thing is that once you see how broken a culture or a system is maybe there's room to to sort of think okay now we have to fix it like if it's yeah. so obviously broken then then you just have to fix it and so i think systemically the places that were broken that's like virus stuff that's like how do you respond to to a crisis like this what i think is interesting is It is very obvious how estranged we are from each other. And and let's just take it down to the American context. We used to have a collective American identity. And I don't think that we have that anymore. And I think that's really, really, really bad. And it's something that I want to work on personally. I want to find the places where we come together as a culture.
0: I'm a big fan of finding common ground as well. And I actually like being able to have disagreements, but disagreements where there's some shared values that you can pull back together around. And I think that's the concerning thing is that we've lost a lot of that. Now it feels like we've sort of retreated back to our tribal identities. That said, maybe the optimistic take on that is, I think we are expecting a complete calamity. There were projections of a million, two million deaths It looks like so far we've staved that off, but I don't think we have a good plan for reopening the society, which is concerning. So maybe people are actually retreating back to these tribal identities because they feel like, well, we can actually afford to argue about stuff that doesn't matter again (laughs) because
1: we're feeling like this is actually going better than we thought. Yeah, I I think that's definitely part of it is that things aren't actually that, 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 that bad for most of us yet. Maybe that's the place to hope. My sense is that The reason we retreated is just because it's comfortable. It's so intensely a part of us at this point and a part of our culture that that's just, it it was a hard habit to break and we didn't break it. This is something, this was a forcing function that potentially could have broken it and it it did not. So that's kind of scary to me.
0: Totally. I think I also had a hope that this could usher us into some sort of a new normal that was better than where we were, but I think we're retreating back to what was comfortable, even if it wasn't healthy and, and that's not great.
1: I mean, listen, like I'm a part of this problem. I understand that. I am fighting all the time. I I don't say with, I feel like I'm fighting against. I feel as if I'm striking back because for a long time, nobody in the tech industry was striking back. Nobody who was working on technology or working in industry, working on companies. I I felt like we were just being assaulted and demonized and no one was telling our story for us. And I, I wanted to be a part of that. I think an aspect of that, the telling of that story is fighting back against narratives that are not true or that are disingenuous, that are malicious. But that naturally turns you a little bit into the thing that you didn't like to begin with. And I understand that. It's actually a sort of a decision that I made myself. I knew that if I was going to get into this stuff on Twitter, I was going to become a, a little bit of the problem. and Yeah, a little um, bit of a lightning rod. Although I can
0: say, you also say a lot of the things that people are thinking, which I think a lot of people appreciate,
1: even if they're not fully willing to articulate that publicly. <laughs> yeah, I I am fashioning myself as the problematic fave of Silicon Valley. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't think the things I'm saying are even that crazy. I think it's just like the bounds of acceptable speech are so narrow right now, and they're completely determined by people who don't have the same interests as anyone in the technology industry or anyone in industry period. Anybody working on this stuff, like we're not determining those rules. So yeah, it's like, I I think the kinds of things that we like to talk about are sort of unacceptable or they're seen as like a little bit weird and, oh, what do you really mean? I think it's really important to just speak honestly. When you believe in something or you have a feeling about something, an opinion about something, and and it feels sort of uncomfortable to share it, that to me says that there's something bigger than you happening that is a problem. If it's within reason, if it's to your best reasoning, like, perfectly reasonable thing to say or you you think that you have an insight that is valid then yeah I just think you have to share it I I think that this culture of not speaking is sick and we need to heal it it's
0: super unhealthy and on a related note you seem to have a really strong I would say a bullshit detector for when the dominant narrative is wrong and obviously sometimes you're gonna have false positives false negatives whatever and I know you also care a lot about the stories that we tell ourselves culturally. I think I heard you say in another conversation that you care almost more about the stories we say to ourselves on an individual level or a cultural level around technology than the actual technology or the actual like, building that we're doing yeah. because it's almost like a leading indicator. Can you talk a little bit about it is. Where, did that, where did that originate
1: from? I've always believed in the power of stories to affect change. I, I mean, I've studied this in college, I studied this. I literally created my own major and studied this specifically storytelling, the way we convey information differently in different mediums and how these stories shape people. There's like a religious cut to it. I think it's like all that, the secret stuff that Oprah's obsessed with. I'm kind of into like the power Mm. of positive thinking and this and that, because I've seen it in my own life and in the life of honestly, my mom, my mom came from a pretty crazy background. And from the time that I was a little kid, she always told me the story of her upbringing and everything that she had gone through. She came from a pretty dark place and rose up and accomplished a lot in her life. And I always knew that it was the story that she was telling herself. She told a story about all these things that happened in her life, in which she was the hero of this crazy drama. And it started, you know, at the bottom and it would end with her on top. And She was always so proud of her story, and she loved to tell anyone Mm -hmm. about where she came from. And one, I believe that I internalized the lessons of that story. Perseverance, you know, the American dream. If you don't like your life, you can change it. It's your responsibility to change it, all those kinds of things. But then there's that piece, I was really obsessed with the way that story itself was almost like a spell that was affecting Mm -hmm. everything around her and us in her family. It was really, really powerful. And I think you see this at the smaller level like that, with people just kind of telling themselves positive stories and lifting themselves up. You also see that at the corporate level, famously, with people like Steve Jobs, who are telling stories that become... The reality distortion field, right? Yes, famously. Stories are just powerfully motivating and you have to tell the right kinds of stories about yourself. And I'm just very, very sensitive to the stories that are being told about us. And when I see someone in media, for example, telling a story about how, I don't know, Americans are evil or bad, or the technology industry is wicked, dystopian, we're living in dystopia now, all these kinds of things. I'm not just like, you're wrong and bad and mean. I'm thinking, okay, what are we going to get from that story? How, How are we going to change the world after we internalize a dark story like that. And that is really concerning to me, especially if it's not true. And it's really, I mean, it's not true that. So, so then the question is like, if it's not true, why are they telling it? Right. Uh, And then you get into all these sort of dark implications about their motivations, which I'll just, we can table that for another day. All I know is that those stories are, they're wrong and, and we need to tell something else and we need to get people inspired and excited and motivated.
0: Yeah. I think stories are really, uh, compressed and efficient way of transmitting information. It's why they're so powerful and they've persisted for generations and millennia. And yeah, you can go back to the Bible. You can go back to the religious foundations of, of any world religion and see the power of stories in action. I think it's a really great segue into my next question, which is, can you tell a story from your childhood that strongly influenced you? You mentioned your mother's story. Obviously, that had an impact on you as well because you were kind of in her orbit as she was sharing and telling that story. What's a story from your childhood that really influenced who you are today?
1: I don't know if it's like a story about me so much as the kinds of stories I was interested in. So my parents used to take us down, my little sister and I down to uh, Disney World. We would drive from New Jersey down to Florida and then we would stay at Fort Wilderness, which is a place where you can camp. It's like inside of Disney World, but it's not as expensive as a hotel basically. So we would drive down, we would stay at that camp and we would go to the parks. And one park in particular was Epcot Center. And Epcot, was an acronym back in the day. stood for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. And Walt Disney originally planned Epcot as literally that. It was supposed to be a new city. And I remember going to this place. I didn't quite know all of that yet. That I would learn later as I researched it. But as a kid, I went there and you could feel it. It was just this futuristic city. And everything all throughout Walt Disney World, actually, the monorails and the hydroponic gardens, that you could sort of take a boat through at Epcot and see the future of farming and this and that was really inspiring to me. It was like, wow, why is this city functioning better than the cities that we live in? This is supposed to be fake, but it's clearly working. And here are all these people inside of it. And I it was just really inspiring as an idea of there is a better future coming and we are working towards it. And that is a good thing. And I think then separately, it was like, I would go home after that and watch Star Trek with my dad and we would build models of the Starship Enterprise. And literally I would hang from my ceiling. So I would go to bed sort of thinking about that and dreaming of that. And Star Trek was a really interesting show because I think people have this, people who don't watch Star Trek, the next generation have this idea of it as, battles in space and you know the captain firing laser beams at aliens and there was a little bit of that but mostly what was happening in star trek you had this team of scientists exploring the cosmos and having really interesting one-off episodes about fascinating life on alien worlds and it just got me dreaming and thinking about i don't know how much different the world could be than it was and how much different i believed it was going to be and so those stories really just gave me a taste for something that I went looking for probably for the rest of my life. And still to this day, I still think about things sort of in, in that context. It's another reason that I, I'm so sensitive to stories is because even even in my own life, I mean, s- stories have been just powerfully motivating, not just my mom's, but, but fictional narratives have been incredibly motivating.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting with Walt Disney too, because... I feel like one thing that strikes me about his story of what he did and really building something incredible out of nothing that far outlasted his own life, is it felt like there was really an inherent optimism to it. You probably experienced that as a kid at Epcot. I've never been to Disney World, but I grew up in Southern California, so Disneyland was a place I went to multiple times. And I remember watching and I think reading a biography about Walt Disney, and they talked about the berms that they built around Disneyland in 1955, which sheltered you from the outside world, kind of a protective structure that he built into everything. And I think what strikes me too about the time period, I guess from the 50s into the 60s when he went and built Disney World where you went, and Peter talks a lot about this in some of the interviews I've seen with him, it seems like kind of late 60s is where we sort of hit this peak where we'd been growing economically and and there was a lot of optimism about the future. And we started to tell a different story heading into the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, as we started to sort of believe that growth wasn't possible and that all these things weren't
1: possible. Yeah, he says that I think it's like mostly true, but Star Trek The Next Generation was much more inspiring to me than the original Star Trek, which was much more of like kind of a space western, like a shoot 'em up kind of bang-bang thing. So there was definitely stuff that came later, and certainly in my life, it's just there's less of it, and it's made fun of relentlessly even today, you're just not supposed to believe that things are good and are going to be good. If you think that, then you're some kind of Pollyanna and you're silly. You're not serious. You must not know what's really going on because real smart people know that everything is bad and there is no meaning in the world. And that's just like this dark postmodern. It feels just sort of like a cancer, honestly, like like a cultural cancer that we, we we have to get past. Yeah,
0: I couldn't agree more. Speaking out in any sort of an optimistic tone is a negative signal in a world where being pessimistic is considered intelligent. Switching gears a little bit, in a blog post that I read of yours called What We Believe, you speak very boldly about sort of the link between free markets and freedom generally and how they're sort of inextricably linked. So
1: what we believe in, or what we believe, I'm alluding to Margaret Thatcher. So she wins, she, she's the prime minister. She comes in really wanting to bring back free market ideology to the nation of Britain, which had totally stagnated and was really dying, I think. So she immediately starts getting pushback from her own party because people think she's being too radical and too crazy and no one's going to ever tolerate her and she's going to be hated and they're going to lose power. There's a famous story it goes like there there are all these men around her desk. She's the first female prime minister ever. She takes out of her bag a copy of The Constitution of Liberty and she slams it on her desk and she says, this is what we believe. And I love that. I love that moment in history or at least that story. Who knows if it's true or not? Mm -hmm. It might be apocryphal, but it's true in my head. That's why stories are so powerful, right? I think that you need that kind of energy right now, especially as people are forgetting why the free market is so important. It's like oxygen. Okay. Like you can't just turn it off without suffocating. And we've seen that in every single country in the entire world. And I, I think for me, that piece was really about I wanted to go through and sort of logically explain to myself, really, what are the ways in which our market has come up? Like, how has it emerged? And how is it essential? Is it essential? Like, how does all of that work? What are the things that we believe about the world that are fundamental to the development of the free market? And are those things true? And I, I wanted to kind of just remember all of that to sort of refresh myself, because at that time, and still today, the words socialism and capitalism are being thrown around a lot online. And in a way that they've, they've almost lost all of their meaning, people completely, have completely politicize the words we don't remember what they mean we don't remember what socialism means that socialism yeah. is actually for example a prescription of force it is a way to manage an economy whereas the free market is the absence of that so you get into all of these weird questions for example like is socialism more moral than capitalism? And you would think I would say no, but the answer is yes. It is. I think socialism is totally evil, but it is more moral than capitalism because it's a moral system. They're they actually proposing something that is you know, their morality. Capitalism is the absence of that. The free market is like, mm-hmm. we're not here to impose morality on anything. Immorality is something else that exists. You can get your morality from any number of cultural things, certainly religious institutions. Mm-hmm. And that probably to me is, I think that's really what caused all of this. The collapse of religion forced people to look for morality somewhere else. And you have to find meaning somewhere. People started looking more towards, I think, their political systems for that or even their economic systems. And and that's a place where the free market is always going to lose because that's not what it is. It's, yeah. it's not a moral system. You can't system. even compete on that battlefield because it's not, it's not competing on a moral dimension. Right. And so every time that you go to fight with a socialist about these issues, the morality of your economic system, you're going to lose even yeah. if their system ends necessarily in enslavement. That's what you have to do to make socialism work. You still lose because at the end of the day, Capitalism is not moral. It's not supposed to be. It's not saying anything at all. And even a bad idea wins against an idea that's nothing at all. But I think these things are really important right now more than ever as we have this really crazy resurgence of socialism that we're seeing from the left, as well as a really wild strain of populism from the right that is also anathema to free market ideals and things like this. I mean, both polar extremes are pretty sort of burn the world down type people. And I think a lot of things should be burned down, to be honest. A lot of our institutions are corrupt. A lot of them are broken. They need to be rebuilt. But we need to be very careful not to destroy the things that have allowed us to create everything, literally everything good about our world today. Yeah, and throw the baby out with the bathwater. It does feel like the terminology that we're
0: using to frame this battle is so problematic because we end up in a world where there's just false choices. Here's false choice number one. Here's false choice number two because of the polarization, you're pushed to a side, you're pushed to make a choice that really uh, that we should try to obliterate or at least expand the range of options that we get to choose from versus a cartoonish version of populist conservatism on one side and uh, a pretty dangerous strain of socialism on the other side, especially that's being supported by folks that primarily were born after the Berlin
1: Wall fell. So they have no real context for what socialism is. I mean, they do, of course. Venezuela exists. They just don't when someone wants to believe something, they're just going to believe it. And these people want to believe that capitalism is evil and socialism is good and that the world will be better if everyone was equal rather than free. And I mean, if you believe that, there are no shortage of ways that you're going to find to confirm that bias. And we all have these biases. I have biases myself. I try my best to check them, but it's just really hard to do that. I don't think humans are really wired that way. It's a constant effort. And so this is a problem that will persist probably for as long as people persist. We're, we're always going to have to be checking our biases and believing things that we want to believe in and things like this. Certainly they want to. I think that if Soviet Union were still around today, they would still be like this. Yeah. Um,
0: well, I mean, and they did. I mean, there's footage in the 80s of certain former presidential candidates, which don't need to be mentioned, who are praising the Soviet Union, in yes. the Soviet Union or after a recent trip when things were obviously not great there. So I
1: yeah. Just, we have proof of this. Well, we had an actual network of American spies who were spying on behalf of the Soviet Union because they believed that that system was better. This was even after all the Stalin shit came out and we knew about the gulags and all the you know millions of people who were killed by that country. It was There was all sorts of apologetics about that. And those apologetics persist until this day. I mean, yeah. I just saw someone on Twitter. He was tweeting about something insane we don't have to get into. And I just... Took a quick glance, and I mean, he had a hammer and sickle in his name. Like that. I mean, that. that can you imagine if someone had a swastika in in their it's, name? Like, he yeah. was, If you were just like openly a Nazi, like totally. that's, that's something that we, we have no tolerance for on the on the Nazi side. Th- thank God, it's like we yeah, have, as we should. We have I mean, like, zero oh, tolerance for that. That's extremely evil, and yep. you know, that's not a serious person if they're talking about those things. You know, we're happy to police that part of the culture, but this, I mean, that's not even just saying that you're a Marxist. That's specifically pointing to a government that once existed that was run by mass murderers. And murdered tens of millions of people and we have proof of it. Yeah, and that's something that I have no tolerance for that. And I refuse to ever apologize for talking about those things, even though I know it's something that makes people uncomfortable. Like you're not supposed to talk about the Soviet Union, you know, being run by a bunch of mass murderers, and you're not supposed to talk about the evils of communism, even though those things are true. There's a sense that if you talk about those things, you're some kind of right-wing lunatic. And it's like, I'm sorry, but that's never been the case. And right now, more than ever, we actually have to have these conversations because we have people in Congress and the Senate talking about Marxism as if it's a normal thing. So like, yeah, we've got to have this conversation. Yeah. And I know we mentioned this a little earlier in the
0: conversation, but you have a a gift. Probably sometimes you do it as a curse for just saying what's on your mind. And I think that society would be better off if we got more people to do that instead of uh, you having to do it for a lot of people. And I'm sure you get a lot of DMs. I even get DMs with this podcast and some of my stupid tweets of like, hey, thanks for letting that out there because we need more of those ideas out there. How can we improve courage for people to say what they believe and thereby sort of expand the range of acceptable discourse in society? I know it's a very big question, but you probably thought about it a lot. How do we arm people with the courage to say what they believe, whether
1: they agree or disagree or anything? Man, I don't even know that people should do it, to be honest. I think there is a lot of downside to speaking your mind in this environment. I understand that. And I don't want to encourage people to go and do something they're not comfortable with and then be attacked. I mean, there are people, especially in the tech industry, who have lost their jobs because of beliefs that they've had that are actually grounded in reason. We don't have to get into all of that, but there's a culture of that already out here and a culture of that broadly. And you have tons of people online who are dedicated to finding people with the wrong ideas and then going to those people's jobs and saying, fire this person for their wrong idea. That's hostile. That's insane. I, I am myself protected from a lot of that because I work at a place where independent thought is not only accepted, but like, Those are table stakes. You have to be thinking for yourself. And if you're not, then you're not working at Founders Fund. Like we want people there who are thinking differently than other people, even with each other. We fight online kind of a lot. Well, I wouldn't say fight. It's we disagree (laughs) with each other quite a lot. And we do that at the lunch table. Well, not really anymore now that it's COVID nineteen, we're all at home. But that's the culture there. Zoom digital lunch table. Right. It's like a culture of strong disagreement, almost like joyful disagreement. But if you're not in a place like that, I think What you got to do, and this has probably been a problem throughout time. I just think the internet has exacerbated a lot of these dynamics. So, what you have to do is read an essay by Leo Strauss called Persecution and the Art of Writing. Hmm. And I think it's like one of these weird truths in the world. I mean, he frames it as to survive in any culture where you don't agree with the majority. You have to learn to hide a little bit, but Hmm. also signal so you can find your friends and your allies and start to speak a little more openly about things. I wish that it was not this way sometimes, but I literally can't stop myself. I mean, I see something online sometimes that it's like lightning hits my brain and I have to respond to it. Yeah, totally. Um, But but if you don't, if you have more self-control, then I would say you have to just be more careful about what you say. It's horrible to say, but you have to think about the way that your writing is going to be perceived, the way that your arguments are going to be perceived, not just like, oh, will people like them or not, but will this cost me my job? Like, what are the consensus views that people have about the world? One, are they right? Right? Two, if they're not, is it safe to to speak out against them? I would love to say just be courageous. And there should be more of that. I think certainly among people like myself who are very well protected, like there's no reason for me to be censoring myself at all. No one's gonna fire me for what I'm saying. So it's like I have to stand up and speak. One, I can't help myself, but two, it's like, it's I, like an I obligation there's almost, some level. It is. There's like yeah. a moral obligation at that point when I'm this well protected and so many people are not. I have to say something. Um yeah. And there are a lot of people in tech who are in that position and they should stand up and say something. They should fight back against these insane media narratives. They should fight back against the mob. All of us should be doing that. But for everybody else, I think you have to be a little careful and you have to inch towards those things. You have yeah, to, I think
0: there's probably know. a level of micro courage that you can deploy and maybe it's offline. Maybe it's just one to one conversations with friends where you can just speak a little bit more openly. And I, I love the idea that as a communicator, you take full responsibility for how your communication's coming across to the other person. That's a really ideal world to live in where if you're not understanding me, it's, it's on me, it's not on you. However, that gets a little bit distorted when people bring their preconceived notions and their preconceived narratives to the table and want to twist what you're saying.
1: It gets a little harder to do that. That's Levels just of the game, be right? That's not a mistake. People are certainly online today locked in a sort of 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week ideological war zone Yeah. And in it, I mean, it is there. Well, I don't think it's so they're not LARPing that a lot of them are LARPing the sort of communist revolution or the American revolution. Like that's all over the place and it's absurd and hilarious and I love it from afar. But the thing that's real is the internet now is where we are determining the dominant political philosophical narratives of America, you know, over the next decade. Like it's starting just online and it is just people saying things, disagreeing with each other, you know, writing articles, picking them apart. I think it's like a very exciting environment, intellectual environment, but it's also very heated. It is a struggle and people are not fighting honestly or fairly. They are definitely going to misrepresent every single one of your opinions. If they don't like you ideologically, if they think that you're the quote bad guy, yeah, they're never going to, they're never going to give you the benefit of the doubt. They're going to quote oh, no. tweet you and say, look at this asshole making an argument for Nazism. And it's like, oh, okay, well, here, this is like why we can't have nice things <laughs> to course. a certain extent. But if you know those are the rules, if you know that's what's happening, then you just have to keep that in the back of your mind and you have to prepare for it. You, you have mm-hmm. to find ways to fight back against that kind of Dishonesty, and you have to just be a little bit more of a fighter. I think you have to grow a spine to a certain extent, yeah. especially if this is what you do. If you are in the business of communication and writing and putting forth ideas and telling stories, you have to be courageous because mm-hmm. if you're not, then you just lose. Th- this is not even new. The internet has made everything more intense. You know, all of these fights live inside of your pocket now. All of this information lives on the supercomputer that you walk around with. We saw this before the 20th century in America that was the yeah. culture you had all of these fighting presses i mean they could escape it a little more easily but there's always been a struggle for the truth always and it's never been it's never really been fought fairly
0: yeah it's never been easy it's just maybe the the battle wasn't in your pocket buzzing you 24/7 with push notifications switching gears a little bit again so you've expressed some interest in local politics i think you've said and i fully agree with this that san francisco should be the best city in the world I mean it's a city where the future is being built every day and yet we live in a city that um, I live in the East Bay but I commute to the city when we're not in the middle of a global pandemic and we're living in a city that's kind of falling apart in a lot of ways and it's very sad it's hard to watch do you think that you'll ever get involved at the political level or do you prefer to stay more involved at the level of ideas and and pushing for change that way?
1: I don't know. I, I hate the idea of having to censor myself. And I looked into local politics and I tweeted about it because I was genuinely curious. I just asked like, hey, does anybody know anything about this? I want to know more about it, learn more about it, see if it's something that I could help out with. From the moment that I did that, people locally were reaching out. They wanted to do something. They wanted to get me involved. They wanted to you know, work with me, maybe not in the capacity as like a district supervisor, but they were just excited that people were excited about local politics. There are a lot of people there who want to do good work and are doing good work and they just want help. And we should all probably be thinking more about local politics. But from the moment that I tweeted that and these people started being like, oh, is he going to run or not? I started to self-censor online. I started to, Mm -hmm. I started to moderate my opinions that really got into my head in terms of what I was willing to talk about and what I was not willing to talk about. And I, that's just not, my journey. That's kind of a a non-negotiable for you. Yeah, it's just not. I can't do that. So that's going to be a no for me, dog. (laughs) Trust me, as someone who
0: has been fascinated with politics my whole life, I started interning at my local state assemblyman when I was 14. I was a congressional page. You know that there are Navy suits running around the House of Representatives. I was doing that at 16. I worked at the White House at 19 for George W. Bush. So I have a love-hate relationship with politics myself. And I have zero interest in running for office. So you are
1: preaching to the choir 100%, my friend. Yeah, it just seems miserable, which I was willing to do. I was willing to sort of have a, a life that I enjoyed less if I could do some real good there. But the idea of censorship to me is just I would lose too much of myself.
0: Yeah, it's too tough of a pill to swallow. I think the other thing too is there's so much asymmetric downside personally to getting involved in politics, the local level, the state level, the federal level, it doesn't matter. I think that's obvious. I think that's a problem because our best and brightest don't run for office and a lot of the folks that do, not all of them, but some of them you have to question, is someone that wants power that much really who you want leading or a reluctant leader like a George Washington type of thing? And I think that's a fundamental dynamic that we would need to change if we want to get more people to come in and do tours of duty or tours of service in the public realm. Like, it'd be great if you could do three, four, five years of helping out and then go back to kind of the private sector or whatever you want to do. Um, And it'd be great if we had people kind of cycling in and out all the time. And the system doesn't really lend itself to that, unfortunately.
1: No, it's the money too. I mean, the government just can't compete on salaries for the smartest people in the country. They can just make so much more money in the private sector, one. But then two, because Europe has some of this as well, but they have more people entering public service, at least in some of the states that function a little better. So the Scandinavian countries and even to a certain extent, France, there's a much richer culture of going into work at government. America has a super anti-government culture, which I love mostly. I think it mostly is really important to have this distrust of the state. You want to hold power like that to account. Absolutely. But uh, it has this negative externality, which is that if one, you can't make money doing the thing and two, your neighbors don't think you're that awesome for doing it. You know, it's not that great of a story to tell at the dinner table. Like, yeah, oh, you're a congressperson. That's, I guess, pretty cool. And, but you're on the board of supervisors. Like, who, no one really gives a shit. And because of that, we have a huge problem getting talented people into government. I think that we should. Man, I mean, this is like a whole other conversation, but even as a sort of, I lean a little more libertarian. I think a lot of my politics have evolved over the last few years. Same. I think because the. the On any given issue, I could be left, right, and center
0: on every single one. If we went through them all, I'd be all over. It's
1: just, there's a lot going on right now. The deck has been shuffled. And so I think you have to kind of look at things differently. But I do think it makes sense to just pay. Like in San Francisco, our board of supervisors, that's our legislative body. They should just be paid a lot more money. Yeah. Like let's just triple their salary and start there. If you make it a prize that really talented people want, it will be worth leaving the private sector to to enter the government. And I, I wish that we could do it across the board. I mean, I wish that we could fire two thirds of all government employees and triple the salary of the rest. I wish
0: with teachers we could pay them, you know, 150, 200 grand, the amazing ones, especially the ones that can um, teach larger groups of people through technology. But we have to be able to fire some of the bad ones so we can really empower and elevate and compensate the ones that deserve it. So that's just my unpopular opinion about education, mm-hmm. but I agree. It's the same thing. So I think you're probably one of my spirit animals on Twitter. I wanted to pick up two tweets that really stuck out in my mind when they, when they came across my feed and just ask kind of what you were thinking when you said that. The first one I thought was really striking. You said, the only belief of mine I'm ever really scared to share with people I respect is that I think I believe in God, parentheses, sorry. I thought that was such an interesting (laughs) tweet, and I think it got a pretty good reaction, but what was the thought behind that?
1: Yeah, I think that smart people are not supposed to believe in God, and that is something that, again, a narrative that I internalized myself at a young age and was very afraid of. I struggled with, I think every probably person struggles with you know, their faith and what they believe in. And, you know, what is reality? All these kinds of questions. I was briefly atheist in college. I became extremely depressed. It never sat right. It was like a belief I felt like I had to have. And it just took me years. Honestly, it wasn't until very recently. I'm 34 now. It was like the last few years that I became comfortable with, again, I think a belief in God. Like I lean in that direction and like an openness to it it's more than an open it's i would say it's more than an openness i'm not just an agnostic like i actually softly believe in god yeah i I believe in in a creator um an intelligent creator of the universe that i think but this language the reason that the conversation is so silly is because we hear that and we think old man with a white beard creates the universe right i think that humans are it's this delicate balance that I'm trying to walk here between. I truly do believe that our potential is almost boundless. The human race. I think we could do almost anything, but also I think that we're fundamentally limited by these five senses of ours that we developed on a planet where we evolved to, you know, avoid being eaten by mountain lions or something. Like we have touch, taste, smell, sight. Like that's just what we have because it made sense in this one physical dimension. What I'm always curious about. Are what are the things that we don't know we don't know? Where are we blind and don't even know we're blind? And I think that that is actually a huge question that probably is many, 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 many orders of magnitude larger than the things that we do know, the things yeah. that we can see. And that alone says to me that we'd have no right to be making declaratives about the universe that are like, oh, oh, it just happened randomly. And there is no God. And it's sort of like a lot of the arguments they use, the sort of atheists will use against religious people are so easy to turn directly back on them. And so then we're left with this one basic question, which is for me, why does existence exist at all? That is this in- incredible mystery that is not random. Things do not just randomly Mm-mm. Exist? I don't. I know this sounds this is almost like a am I smoking weed right now kind of conversation, but <laughs> but I do think about it. It like it, it, for a long time. This question really kept me up at night. Why is there anything? It yeah. just doesn't make any sense. Um, I think I think every
0: human probably asks that on some level. I think some of us think more about those existential questions than others. The nature of reality. Look, I'm very much uh, of a similar mind to you in terms of being someone who thinks a lot about why things exist, why things are the way they are. And that also pushes me in the direction strongly of believing that there's a God, which I know is unpopular to say, as you mentioned in your tweet. The other thing I'll say is I grew up in a Christian household. So for me, there was sort of a context that was there that I was allowed to kind of learn and think about this stuff. But personally, I went to college at Berkeley, very much an anti-religion, anti-faith place, not, not completely, but just not very pro-religious exploration in any sense. And I would say that while I definitely walked away from faith as sort of an active part of my life, and I never went full-on agnostic atheist, I just, I couldn't shake the sense that there was an intelligent designer that was above everything, creating this very complex, infinitely interesting reality. And then actually, similar to you, I'm 33 years old, probably in the last like three to four years, really since my wife became pregnant with our daughter, I really embraced just investigating faith more actively. And it's just been a fascinating journey because it was me actually choosing to do it. It was not fourteen-year-old me being like, "Hey, do you want to go to church?" And me being like, "No, I don't, I
1: don't. I want to stay home, you know, from my parents." Type of thing. Yeah, I think just right off the bat, investigating faith. Right, you look at all these faith systems around the world. We were talking about Christianity a lot, and of course, we do. I mean, we're yep. in the West. This is the foundation in a lot of ways of the Western civilization is Christianity. These are not, to me, stories about god the creator coming down and talking to noah and abraham and all of this it's their metaphors we're back to storytelling and how do you convey complex information through the ages how do you tell a story to someone that contains in it all of this really really vital information it's metaphorical language and i think that the bible is not literally true i think in some places it might be i don't know but what i know for a fact well do i know it for a fact no (laughs) What I, what I strongly suspect, what I strongly feel is that it is generally true. It is metaphorically true. And then that's the thing that is the most uncomfortable to talk about because we're not supposed to talk about this. You know, it's measurement and what can be proven and what can be repeated and all of that's important. I believe in those things. I believe in empiricism. However, I also just have this feeling Mm -hmm. in my gut that all of this There's more to it. I just know that there is a transcendent truth beyond all of this. I know that there is something higher and a higher order and a higher purpose and a meaning. I just know it. Yeah. I think by design, we're not supposed to figure it all out. Like you said, there's all these unknown
0: unknowns. That is the nature of our reality. There's a lot that we don't know and we should be pursuing it. We should be pursuing truth and exploration. And look, if you believe in any God, whatever your religion is, and you believe that Man is on some level created in God's image or anything like that, then you're supposed to use the logos and the reason to go pursue everything and create and build, right? I think that's where there's a big tie into some of the themes you talked about earlier. We should really pursue those things and not shy away from them and not just sit on our hands and say, well, the world is the way it is and it sucks and we have to just live with it.
1: Yeah, there was one prayer. I, I grew up uh, Catholic and it was the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, Heart in Heaven. And a couple of years ago when I was really coming to terms with My perspective on faith and the sort of like connection between myself and God, and also all of my like sci fi beliefs, the things that I want to live in, the world Mm -hmm. that I want to live in. I like remember that prayer, and now just like in a different context, and specifically the line, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I was like, Oh, like our job is to construct heaven, it is to build utopia. Like, how did I not think of that? How did I not see that actually? the overlap of faith and the science fiction future, they're not at all. They're, odds. they're the same thing. Exactly. They're, they're the same. Those things are are the same. Yeah. And yeah, that's, I think, where probably my new faith journey began. Because I don't think I really know. I mean, I, I don't know. Who knows? None of us know. None this stuff is know. a crazy mystery. It's a mystery of reality.
0: I love what you said uh, just then about those things not being in conflict. And sometimes you meet people of faith, and they seem so concerned with the next world that they don't care about the one that we're in. And I've always had such a huge problem with that. And I think that verse about, you know, the earth and the heavens points to the fact that there's an obligation to, if you believe in heaven, or if you believe in any of these things, to bring heaven down to earth. That is what you're supposed to be doing by either doing good in the world or building things or helping people. That's the idea. This existence matters. It's not just the next one. Or converse, it's not only this one that matters too, if you want to take it on the more atheist kind of uh, Marxist side of things. They believe that all that matters is the material world, right? And that's, both of those are scary places to be. And the the reality is we don't have to choose one or the other, I think. Well, I hope not. (laughs) I mean, this is (laughs) certainly the path that I'm on, but we'll see. Yeah, this is a a kind of a throwaway question, but I like this idea of turning the tables where you can just fire a question at me and I'm not prepared for it. But do you have a a question for me? And then the final part of the podcast is just
1: a handful of questions I, I ask every single guest. Yeah. What do you hope to accomplish with the podcast? I mean, what is the point of it? Why are we all podcasting?
0: Yeah. I think the thing I love about podcasting versus writing or tweeting is there's just more nuance. There's more texture in the conversation that, yeah, people can still misinterpret. People can still take you out of context, but you can have a real conversation, especially with folks that you disagree with. And it's not even about agreeing. It's just about clarity and having clarity around ideas. And some of the themes you mentioned earlier on about just getting comfortable with disagreement and talking about stuff where there's disagreement and just starting to build that into our DNA. I think that's a pretty lofty goal, but my goal is just to have conversations that uh, push my own thinking and push my own perspective. And anyone that's listening can kind of engage and push their own perspective as well, because I'm certain that I am wrong about a lot of things. I've changed my views on lots of things in the last five to 10 years, and I'm sure I'll change my views on a lot more. And so I'm just a big believer in the marketplace of ideas. I think it's under attack, like you said earlier in the conversation, and just want to create more of an openness to engaging on that level. Love it. (laughs) All right. So I know you're familiar with this question. We mentioned uh, Peter, obviously, earlier in the podcast, and I think he popularized this question. But what's something that you believe that most people don't?
1: I believe that this is something we've already talked about a lot in this podcast. This is the main drum that I'm beating all the time. It's just that story precedes destiny. And the stories that we tell about ourselves actually shape the world. And I don't even necessarily just mean it like, oh, if you tell yourself a story, you're more open to achieving things. I think there's something even deeper than that. I think it's almost magical, to be honest. I think that you can literally shape the world with with a good story.
0: I love that. And I think you've covered that really, really well here. So what's a problem that you're concerned
1: about that most
0: people are not or a problem that people just don't pay enough attention to?
1: The dawn of the Marxist left in America. I think that people don't take that seriously at all. They think, oh, well, you know, America is actually just inherently bad and we've done all these bad things. And these people are not real Marxists. They're just signal shifting and they're, you know, appropriating the language of the Marxist left. And we have to just change what we mean when we say socialist to like map to what we think they mean. No, I think they're actual socialists. I think that they actually want to nationalize all industry. I think that you could just look at Jacobin Magazine, which endorses people like Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez, and you can read what they want to do, like nationalizing Amazon, for example. And that's that's classic Marxism. It leads invariably to the enslavement of entire peoples and the collapse of entire civilizations. We've seen that again and again and again and again. It is a huge threat and we absolutely need to stand up and speak out against it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I consider myself relatively centrist, although the political spectrum has been so obliterated, it's kind of hard to
1: <laughs> yeah, <it is laughs> To be honest out,
0: out there. I agree. I'm constantly talking to my friends that are you know liberal, center left, but we share a lot of the same values around free speech and things like that. And just trying to pull them into a common cause around how the far left in particular, obviously elements of the far right as well, are just, they're they're antithetical to a lot of what you believe is kind of my charge to them. They don't share your values. So don't don't accept that you have to play on their side. There's a broad swath of people in the middle in this country that believe in free speech, that believe in the free market. I mean, that's not like a Democrat Republican thing. A lot of moderate Democrats Uh, a lot of liberal Democrats, they believe in the free market. Maybe they have slightly different ways on how to edit it or how to manage it, and we can debate those. But full command and control of the economy and nationalizing Amazon. I think somewhere in there, there's a line that clearly needs to be drawn, so we need to draw it. What's a problem that most people are very concerned about that you aren't, or a problem that people pay too little attention to?
1: This one is so dangerous. This is such a dangerous question.
0: Like, It wouldn't be a full conversation with you if you didn't drop something dangerous. (laughs) And it's the end of the podcast too. So the folks that get to hear it are the folks that actually have stuck with us through the conversation.
1: I don't know that it's something that the average person cares a lot about, but certainly in the technology industry, something that people talk about all the time is artificial intelligence. And the belief that a sufficiently advanced AI that becomes sentient and conscious, which is weirdly a thing that I mean, we're talking about less now, we're focused more on just complex algorithms that get us stuff like self driving cars and you know, delivery or whatever. But still, in many circles, there's this conversation about sentience and general AI. There's a belief that's extremely risky. I don't think that we have much evidence in either direction, one which, yes, that makes it a little bit scary. But the evidence that we do have, all of the evidence, in fact, is sort of in support of the argument to the contrary which is with greater intelligence comes apparently greater empathy, greater ability to work with others, a greater desire for sort of goodness in the world, a decrease in violence. We've seen this across the world throughout history. You could just track all of these things directly to IQs. So I think that actually, again, not all that much evidence to determine Answer to this question, but certainly everything that we've ever seen indicates that intelligence is good and amplifying intelligence is important. And I think that we cannot place limits on our human potential because of crazy bogeymen that we invent. The evil, malevolent AI is a fiction, and there are just as many fictions that are more powerful. I think also, probably the most important thing is that a competing narrative of a good AI, you know, if you believe in that, that's probably the thing that you're going to end up building. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost a form of Ludditism to say that
0: it's inevitable that we're going to get this all-knowing, all-powerful AI that's going to take over the world. I think we give ourselves as humans too much credit. And also, we're just not really tracking the actual progress that's being made, which is falling far short of that. And I think we're also assuming, like you said, the dystopian negative narrative around things that Whatever intelligent AI emerged would be negative. And it's like,
1: well. Yeah, I think you just hit the the nail on the head, really, with the the bigger problem is not whether or not the AI is going to be evil, but whether or not we're even capable of building things like this. Because increasingly, I mean, what 15 years after the Singularity is Near was written, the Singularity seems a lot less near. Yeah, we
0: can't even. I mean, what? They built the Golden Gate Bridge and like a handful of years. I mean, it would take us decades to build that now. So I think progress is decelerating across a lot of different vectors and a lot of different dimensions of society. And so it's almost like, since we're not doing well, maybe we tell ourselves these stories about how awful the future would be if we did innovate and make progress to make ourselves feel better about the fact that we're not actually going to get there.
1: Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. Absolutely. Okay, last question. What's the best piece of advice you ever received? I think the best piece of advice I ever received came from Peter, though it wasn't framed necessarily as advice. We were working on a class together at Stanford. That class became his book, Zero to One. Mm -hmm. And in it, he talked a lot about competition and not competing with other people. The problem with this advice is it's so hard to actually follow because we're instinctively drawn towards copying other people and struggling with them, especially people that we respect. We end up copying those people. We look to them for cues on how to be and how to exist. We want the things that they want. This is all uh, a part of something called mimetic theory. Uh, it's Rene Girard stuff. So it was to avoid competition and to focus on the things that make you uniquely yourself, which again, is a very hard thing to do, but it's something that I actually struggled with a lot right around that time, a couple of years, maybe a year after I moved to Silicon Valley. So this is back in like 20... 11, 2012, right after the class was finished at Stanford that summer, I remember looking around at all of these people who I was just almost worshiping back then, all of the technologists in Silicon Valley building these incredible things and people who had built incredible things. So, you know, from Peter Thiel to Elon Musk, like there was just this entire spectrum of people that I was looking at who were these like philosopher kings building the future. And I thought that, and even most of the people at Founders Fund back then had technical backgrounds. And I feared that I was technically deficient, that if I was to be taken seriously by even myself, I should be a programmer, I should be coding, I should learn Python, I should learn JavaScript. And so I spent an entire summer trying to teach myself these languages and not writing prose, not working on Twitter, and certainly not, this is way before I was podcasting. And I was trying really to... I thought I was fixing myself, like I was going to fill up these deficiencies that I had, and then I would be as good as these people that I really respected. But the truth is, I realized by the end of the summer, if I studied really hard and I worked really hard, I could be a sort of decent engineer, I could be as good as like a 19 year old Stanford student, maybe a few years from now. But I was already a really good writer, and I, I don't mean like I was a better writer than most people because most people are not even writing, right so I kind of just changed my focus. I thought, instead of trying to get better at things that I am not good at at all, what if I tried to make myself much, much, much better at things I'm already better at than most people? And that became the new trajectory of my life. And that opened all of the doors that I've walked through since that I'm really happy. I mean, I'm really happy to be working on the kinds of things that I'm working on. I'm really happy to have embraced my, I think, edges rather than worried about my deficits and i think that that's the advice i would give to anyone always is like identify the thing that you're already better at and put everything into that lead with that
0: go all in find the things that you're a six or a seven at and drag them to a nine don't try to take the twos up to a five that doesn't really help you it's not worth it plus in a world where technologists are running around being technologists They need air cover on the cultural and the societal level that you're operating at around stories. I mean, they need someone who's fighting for the stories that allow people to believe that some of the stuff they want to
1: do is possible. So I think- It took me a a long time to believe in myself, to believe that there were things that I could do that these people who were so great, who I loved so much could not do or could not do as well. And it just, I didn't take seriously that skill set, the storytelling, the writing, the communication. People would ask me for help with their essays. And I would think they were patronizing me. They were like, Oh, that's the writer guy. Just like go ask him for help with an essay. It took me years to be like, Oh, wait a minute. The reason they keep asking me is because I'm actually helping them because I can actually do things that they can't. I'm not saying they could not ever, but in that moment they couldn't because they hadn't worked on it for as long as I had. I this is something I've worked on since I was a little kid. I've been obsessed with this stuff. And I think that we all have things like that. You just have to, you have to like, love yourself enough to identify those things and to care about them and to say, no, this is valuable. I have a value that I'm bringing to the world. It is unique and I'm going to feed the unique things about me.
0: Well, Mike, this has been an awesome conversation.
1: If folks want to get connected
0: with you, obviously they can follow you on Twitter, but is there any other way to- Yeah.
1: Check me out on Twitter, Mike Solana, M-I-C-S-O-L-A-N-A. Um, also, I've got a new podcast called Problematic, which you should check out. And we just launched the new season of Anatomy of Next. So you could check that one out as well. Yeah. I've been loving both of them. So I encourage everybody to, to check them out. This has been a lot of
0: fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. We're aiming for commute-length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episodes. For episode number 10, I chatted with Gary Tan, co-founder of Initialized Capital, about building the world you want to live in, how having refugee ancestors has influenced his worldview, navigating the idea maze as a founder, and his $200 million mistake.
2: I think that that's something that kind of comes up over and over again in my life, that you kind of can't accept the mainstream narrative all the time. And I think you're a big believer in this. Like what I learned, certainly from this experience, but over and over again is that you know, what do you believe that nobody else believes? And in that particular moment, you know, Facebook was spawned in the moment that people thought the web was dead. And that was the exact wrong thing to do, right? So for me, I went off to Windows Mobile. I wanted to work on mobile devices. That was sort of the consensus thing that would be next. And the funny thing about that is the iPhone still didn't come out for another five years. So timing matters a lot. And Microsoft was very safe. It gave me great health insurance. My parents were proud of me. And about that time, friends of mine went to start a company with Peter Thiel. And I was one of the first people they called. And so they flew me down um, at his expense. He took me out to dinner at his restaurant, Frison, which I think
0: Actually closed very quickly. <laughs>
2: it, was, it was a <laughs> terrible dinner actually. But it
0: made for a really great intro in the book where he talked about how terribly overly competitive the restaurant is.
2: Yes, he learned you a know, very very hard lesson that restaurants are not the kind of things you want to invest in right. or own. <laughs> but he said, hey what are you doing in Microsoft? You are actually wasting your time. And he was so sure about this that he was willing to write me a check for one whole year's salary. Uh, It was a zero risk opportunity for me and, you know, one aspect of privilege that I had at that point that I didn't even realize yet was as someone with a technical background who loved to build, the only risk that I could take is not taking risk. And that was a really crazy inversion at that moment and that's why it cost me 200 million dollars i this was the universe sort of saying here's the thing that you need to work on like who else could you start a company with other than the people you knew for years had started projects with like Mm -hmm. these were you know people i had known for a long time and being funded by someone who you know maybe he wasn't a billionaire at that moment but he was extremely well known in fact i had asked him to come speak at Stanford multiple times. And he did. And he was very generous with his time.
0: That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Tibbets. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself.